here, and Shane and Dawn Sluka, Sophie's Sun Sunday School teachers. And so for all the rest of you, Janie, Carolyn, whoever else, Jerry and Sue, if you have been teaching children at Christ Community Church, everyone, I'm, I'm, you know, Holly, Emily, Kevin and Alyssa, everyone who's teaching and leading in that, you have a part of this too. This is what we're doing, right? Let us not miss this. And so I say thank you uh, as, as a father of someone who was baptized today. I'm, I rejoice in our children's teachers here at Christ Community Church. Thankful. I already did this privately, but uh, you know, since Zach did it publicly, I guess I got to give, give my dad a shout out for Father's Day. Yeah, he's the best. I want to be like him in every way. Um, I, he was so good that I don't need a second dad, um, but apparently the Lord saw fit to give me one for the last 10 years. And Pastor Kevin, um, he has been like a father to me, uh, even when I don't want him to, you know. <laughs> And anyone who's been on the other end of those, like, McGuire Man conversations, um, every day for the last 10 years, y'all. No, so thankful. Happy Father's Day. And to all of you guys, man, you, Andy's not here, I know, but Pete and Zach is the best, right? I mean, all the fathers of Christ Community Church, happy Father's Day. Uh, and to me as well. Six of my closest friends call me dad, so, like Father's Day. All right. We will continue now, though, not for a Father's Day sermon, but on our series on the church and this morning on the sacraments. We, uh, are, we are witnessing both sacraments this morning. Of course, we witness the Eucharist every Sunday, but as we baptize this morning. So let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses uh, 12 and 13. 1 Corinthians 12, 12 and 13, the Holy Spirit says this, For just as the body is one and has many members... So all the members of the body, though many, are one body. So it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Holy Father, we ask now that you would sanctify us in the truth, and we confess that your word is the truth. We pray in the name of your Son, the crucified and risen Lord Jesus, and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, I certainly would not have guessed, maybe two or three months ago, that I would be using two Les Mis illustrations in so many months, but here we are. And so, uh, you know, I'm not going to rehearse it all. Uh, if you're unfamiliar with Les Mis, you know, Google it, or better yet, go back to our church website or Facebook and listen to our law and gospel sermons. Those will be good for you. And because uh, in one of those sermons, I kind of walked through the plot there as an explanation for an illustration. But one of the most important scenes and one of my favorite scenes in Les Mis happens right at the beginning when Jean Valjean is released from prison and he has nowhere to go because, he, because of his criminal record. And Jean Valjean stumbles upon a church which initiates a musical number, number entitled The Bishop. And the bishop of this church welcomes Jean Valjean into the church. He's got nowhere to stay. And he says, you can stay here at the church. You can find refuge at the church. And then he sings one of my favorite lines in the whole play, the whole musical. 
The bishop tells Jean Valjean, there is wine here to revive you. There is bread to make you strong. There is wine here to revive you. There is bread to make you strong. Those lyrics speak to something good and true and beautiful about the sacraments. They revive us. They make us strong. As we begin this eight-week series on the characters and qualities of the church, we're asking what characteristics make up a faithful church. Again, our first topic last week was the preaching of the Word of God because there is no more important task that a church has than the preaching of the Word of God. The preaching of the Word of God is the center of the local church. It is the heartbeat. Without faithful preaching of the Word of God, a church is unfaithful. A church is dead. A church is not a church. The pulpit is the heartbeat of the church, and everything else then flows from the pulpit. This, mo- this morning, we now move to the second most important element of the local church, the sacraments. In fact, this past week, Pastor Kevin and I were texting with Pastor Brett, and Pastor Kevin pulled a statement from the Belgic Confession that says the three marks of a local church, of a true local church, are the preaching of the word, the administration of the sacraments, and the practice of church discipline. Those are three of our topics for this series. Though those are not exhaustive, there are more. Uh, I guess we could debate whether there are less, but there are certainly more marks of faithfulness. And we, this week, look at the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. The sacraments are where the mystery of the gospel becomes tangible. It's where the theoretical becomes real. In baptism and the Lord's Supper, all of the history, theology, and mystery of the gospel of Jesus Christ become real to us. The sacraments are where the past and the future of the kingdom of Christ both break into our present moment. So this morning, we will consider three reasons why the sacraments are essential for the church. Obviously, these aren't the only three reasons, but because time is always of the essence, we will just look at three this morning. Why the sacraments are essential for the local church, why every faithful local church for the last 2,000 years has practiced the sacraments. First reason. The sacraments are essential because Christ commanded us to keep them. This one's pretty simple. Jesus commanded us to keep them. We read before the administration of the baptisms from Jesus' last recorded words in the Gospel of Matthew, the Great Commission, where Jesus commands his disciples to baptize these new disciples in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Jesus explicitly commands his church to practice the sacrament of baptism as the church disciples and teaches all the nations. Of course, the most recognizable instructions in Scripture about the Eucharist are found in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We read from that often here as we administer the Eucharist, verses 17 through 34. And we've noted this before. I'll note it for you again that in that Pericope, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 17 through 34. Five times 
in those verses, five times, Paul uses the phrase, when you come together. Verse 17, verse 18, verse 20, verse 33, and verse 34. Five times when he's teaching about communion, the Lord's Supper, he says, when you come together. The scripture clearly commands and assumes that each local church will observe the Lord's Supper every Sunday as the word of God is preached. Paul also quotes Jesus' command in 1 Corinthians 11, 24 and 25. He says, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The command do this is the Greek word poiete. It's a second person, plural, present active imperative. How exciting, right? What does that mean? Let's break that down a little bit. First of all, it's a verb. You remember the commercials? Verb, it's what you do, right? A verb is something you do. Something we do. So it's a verb. Do this. Take communion. Do this. Second, it's an active verb. It's not a passive verb. It's not something that is done to us. It is something we must actively do. Take communion every week. Third, it's an imperative. That means it's a command. Jesus isn't describing what some people might do. Some churches might take communion every week. This is a command. It's an imperative. He's not offering a suggestion. He's saying, you must do this. Fourth, it's a present tense verb. It's not something that people did in the past. It's not a future verb, meaning something, that, something people might do in the future. No, it's a present tense verb. For all time, the command is to presently do this every time you come together as a church. Finally, it's a second-person plural verb. It's not a second-person singular you, like you as an individual, like you, Al, Alex, take communion. No, it's a second-person plural, like y'all, you all. My grandpa would say, use guys. <laughs> you all take communion. Christ Community Church, you all do this whenever you come together. Jesus explicitly commands the church to practice the sacraments. Now, if that was the only reason, if the sermon was done now, that would be enough. We don't need any other reasons besides Jesus told us to. But I am going to give you two more reasons. The first, because Christ explicitly commands us to. Second, the sacraments are essential for the local church because the sacraments uniquely embody and preach the gospel. The sacraments uniquely embody and preach the gospel. The Westminster Confession of Faith, Pastor Zach read from it earlier, the article on the sacraments says that they are signs and seals of the covenant of grace. That's what the sacraments are. And so, again, Article 4 of the Westminster says there are only two biblical sacraments. The Roman Catholic Church wrongly thinks there are seven or whatever number they think, Jesus gave us two, baptism and the Eucharist. Those 
sacraments were given by Christ. They are the only two signs and seals of the new covenant given by Jesus to the church to be signs and seals of the new covenant. Augustine, who is most influential of all the patristics, defines the sacraments as an outward and visible sign of an invisible yet genuine grace. The sacraments uniquely embody and preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. They do so in a way that nothing else does. Well, what is the gospel? The gospel is the good news that even though God is our holy creator, and even though we, his creatures, have sinned against him when Adam fell, the good news of the gospel that we find in Genesis 3.15 is that the eternal second person of the Holy Trinity, the Son of God, was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. His name is Jesus of Nazareth, and he lived a truly human life without sin, Hebrews 4.15. Jesus never sinned in thought, word, or deed. Jesus never sinned by what he did or by what he left undone. Jesus always loved the Lord his God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. Jesus always loved his neighbor as himself. Jesus never broke the law. He never broke one of the Ten Commandments. Jesus never sinned. And then Jesus offered that righteous, law-abiding life to his Father on the cross when he died, bearing the wrath of God against sin for the sins of his people. And Jesus was buried, just like those four were buried in baptism. Jesus was buried in the tomb, and on the third day, God rose Jesus from the dead. That's the good news. And the good news is if, if you will repent of your sins and trust in Jesus alone, you will be saved. To repent means to confess that you are a sinner. It means what Pastor Mike read from 1 John 1.8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. To confess, to repent means to say, there is sin in me. I am not deceived. I am a sinner. And then to turn from that sin. Because when you're doing so, after the Holy Spirit changes your heart and you repent, the other side of the coin is that you believe. And it is through your belief that you receive the forgiveness of sins and the hope of eternal life resurrected in the new world. When Jesus returns to, to raise the dead and judge the world and make all things new. Repentance is one side of that coin. Faith is the other. Faith means that you have knowledge of who Jesus is and what Jesus did. That you assent to that knowledge, that you believe it's, it's true, it's real, and that you trust in that alone. You trust in Jesus alone, his life, death, and resurrection. That means that when you stand before God on the last day, your only answer to God about how to deal with your sin your only answer is that Jesus did it for you. God says, you want to live with me forever. What are, what are we going to do about your sin? Jesus said, it is finished. And I trust Jesus. That's what that means. That's what faith means. To repent, to believe. Romans 10, 13 says that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The sacraments then embody this good news. 
The sacraments are the tangible picture of the good news of Jesus. Baptism is the initiatory rite into the local church. It's how we, it's, baptism is the door through which we walk to become members of a local church. Just as we come out wet when we are naturally born, so also the waters of baptism signify our spiritual birth. Now that's an important distinction, right? The waters of baptism don't create our spiritual birth, new birth. The waters of baptism signify our new birth. It represents burial. It represents washing. It's a picture. It's a sign and a seal. We pattern the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ in our baptism. Just as those brothers and sisters went down into the water and came up from the water, just like Jesus died and was buried and resurrected, they told all of you they too have died. They too have been buried. They too have resurrected with Jesus. It does not wash away our original sin, but baptism signifies that Christ alone washes away our original sin. Baptism is the initiatory right into the local church. It's the door through which you walk to become a member of the church. And then Holy Communion... The Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, is the continuing rite of the local church. So if baptism is the door through which you walk, the Eucharist is the, the room in which you live. At the Lord's Supper, every week we spiritually feast on the body and blood of Christ. Jesus commanded us to pray for our daily bread, and in communion, Jesus tells us he is our daily bread. In Holy Communion, we weekly commune with the crucified, resurrected, and ascended Christ. At the Eucharist, we give thanks to God weekly for his inexpressible gift. The Lord's table is our weekly family meal with our Father and with our elder brother by the power of the Holy Spirit. The sacraments embody the gospel. They are pictures of the gospel. And it's not arbitrary because they're pictures given to us by Jesus. Again, in Matthew 28, Jesus commands us to baptize. Pastor Kevin alluded to this last week or the week before, whenever. In, in 1 Corinthians 11, what does Paul say? I'm giving to you what I received from the Lord. Jesus explicitly commanded Paul to administer the Lord's Supper in this way. Paul wasn't the first to do it, but he heard it from the lips of Jesus himself. The sacraments are given by Jesus because they embody the gospel. They are more important than you think they are. They are God's means of grace to persevere you through this life. The sacraments not only embody the gospel, they also preach the gospel. In the waters of baptism, in the bread and the wine, we see, we feel, we taste the gospel. There's not a single person who's ever lived, who's ever been baptized, who came away from the waters of baptism dry. My shirt is wet right now. It's impossible. You can't do it. The water's real. There's no one who's ever come away from the Eucharist without having to digest bread and wine. It's real. It's tangible. Christ left us the sacraments so that we can be reminded that the gospel is that real. 
as wet as my shirt is right now. That's how real the gospel is. As real as you're, in a few moments, you're going to taste this bread and taste this wine. That's how real the gospel is. The church, of course, has always baptized with water. That's like a no-duh, right? What else would we baptize with? That's what Jesus left us. There are even brothers and sisters, Christians in, in Russia who have broken icy beds uh, to get to the water so that they could practice baptism. That just makes me stand up a little taller. You know, I got some, Ru- I got some Russian in my blood, so... You know, the first time I ever administered baptism as a pastor was at the little country parish where we were serving before God called us back here. Pastor Kevin uh, invited us back here to minister. But um, the first time I ever baptized anybody, I was pretty nervous, understandably, right? This is a big deal. It's a big deal to them. It's a big deal to me. A couple weeks ago, we were down in Tennessee for Skylar's baptism, and the, that was her, one of her pastor's first baptisms, you know, so he was excited, a little nervous. So I was, I was nervous as well. So I asked Bethany if I could practice on her, you know. <laughs> Reasonable, right? So she graciously agreed, because, you know, wives submit to your husbands, you know, all this. So we lived, we lived right by the church, right? There's the church, and then there's a parking lot, and then there's a little hill, and our parsonage was up on the hill. And so the night before, Saturday night, we walked down to the church, and the baptistry had already been filled, just like uh, Pastor Andrew is always so faithful to fill our baptistry. One of the deacons had filled the baptistry there. But what we did not know was that he didn't turn the heater on yet. I know. Well, Bethany is no wimp, though. So I practiced baptized her in cold water. She may not be Russian by blood, but she is Russian by marriage. And she stands in line with the saints of Russia who broke that ice to baptize their people. But you know what? The waters of baptism remind us how real this is. As real as those experiences are, it's hard for us to compute the lengths people have gone to to baptize because we have been blessed with this baptistry and this climate-controlled building. I mean, as real as Russian believers breaking ice because they want to follow Jesus so bad to be baptized. As real as brothers and sisters in the Middle East even today, who could be executed for being a baptized Christian. Don't tell me baptism is not important. There are people who are laying their lives down for the privilege of what we've done this morning. It's real. That's how real it is for Sophia this morning and Stella and Aaron and Emily. They had to dry off when they got out of the water. Why? Because as real as the water is wet, that's how real the gospel is. Likewise, for the Lord's Supper, bread and wine have always been used by the church to teach us of the body of Christ broken for us and the blood of Christ shed for us. The taste 
and the texture of the bread and the wine remind us of the tangibility of the gospel. Like water for baptism, bread and wine were universally prescribed and used in every Christian church in history. This didn't change until the middle of the 19th century when some liberal Baptists who were influenced by the American temperance movement replaced wine with unfermented grape juice. Uh, it wasn't all the Baptists. There were some Baptists still who continued that, to urge that the church use wine because Jesus himself commanded it. But the use of uh, uh, unleavened bread and wine carry distinct gospel meaning in the sacrament. It's not arbitrary. The, the bread is unleavened because leaven represents sin. And the body of Christ is without sin. The bitterness of the wine represents God's wrath against our sin that is only propitiated by the blood of Jesus. And so if somebody ever tries to tell you that the wine in the Bible was unfermented or there was no alcohol in it, don't listen to them. It's not true. They are wrong. The Hebrew word for wine in the Old Testament is the word yayin. It means wine. It only has ever meant wine. At times, it is associated with people getting drunk. You cannot get drunk if there is no alcohol. Uh, the Greek word in the New Testament is the word oinos. Again, it only ever means wine, sometimes associated with people being drunk. In fact, Paul rebukes the church at Corinth for getting drunk while using wine for the Lord's Supper. There is a word in Koine Greek for unfermented juice from grapes. It's the word trucks. That means grapes that have not been fermented. Ancient grape juice, even though they wouldn't have called it that. That word is never used in the Septuagint, and it's never used in the New Testament. So we can debate whether it's okay to use grape juice or not. What we cannot debate is that Jesus used wine and for 1950 years, or 1900 years, that's all any Christian ever used was wine. Because the unleavened bread and the wine are teaching us about the gospel. The point is that the elements of the sacraments, water for baptism, bread and wine for communion, are part of the embodiment and the preaching of the gospel. It's a reason we don't use chips and Coke for communion. Because the bread and the wine are teaching us. They are intentional. Those elements picture the meaning and tangibility of the gospel. But there is theology contained in the nature of the elements themselves. Thus, in baptism and the Lord's Supper, believers remember and proclaim redemption in Christ because the sacraments uniquely embody and preach the gospel. Okay, so first reason, Christ explicitly commanded it. Second reason, the sacraments uniquely embody and preach the gospel. And here's your final reason. The sacraments are essential because they characterize God's family. The sacraments are essential because they characterize God's family. We read from 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 and 13, that says, In one spirit we were all baptized into one body, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. Don't, don't miss this. The scripture is using sacramental language baptized into one body, made to drink of one spirit. This sacramental language is teaching us about the nature of the church. In our baptisms, in our eating and drinking of the Eucharist, 
we are united in the body of Jesus himself. The sacraments are our uniting family characteristics. This is not hard for us to understand, right? Everybody has family characteristics. You have the nose of one of your grandparents. Or you do something in an annoying way just like your parent did, right? Or if you put a wig on him, he looks just like his sister, right? We all have family resemblances. In the church, the sacraments are our family resemblance. We all come from different walks of life, different ethnicities, different socioeconomic statuses, different political affiliations, but we are all baptized into one body. We all eat and drink from the same table. Just as we're all born of our mother into this world, so we all come through the waters of baptism into the body of Christ. So also the name the Lord's Supper evokes a family dynamic, doesn't it? The Lord's Supper, it's supper. God is our Father and we are his family. We are the bride of Christ and we weekly have supper with each other and with our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Apparently, there's a Russian theme for today as well, because there's a 15th century painting by a Russian artist named Andrei Rublev. The painting is called Tritsa. That's the Russian word for Trinity, the Trinity. And in the piece, Trinity, what you see as you're looking at it is you see three men sitting at a table. It's kind of like a, a circular table, and there are three men sitting there, and it's called Trinity. So when you look at it and then you consider, consider the perspective of the person who's looking, the viewer, you, what you see is that there are four people sitting at a table, right? There are these three men and they're you. You're sitting at the table. You're looking at them. And Rublev's point is that when God saves us, we're invited into the fellowship of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Salvation is bringing us to the table with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Church, we enact this or reenact this every single week at the Lord's Supper. We dine with each other and we dine with our God. The Lord's Supper is also called Holy Communion. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10, 16, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? That word participation, you'll be familiar, it's the Greek word koinonia. But in the Vulgate, in the Latin translation of the Bible, it's uh, the word communicatio. That's where we get the term communion for. Communion is the word koinonia, fellowship. Because when we come to the communion table, we are having fellowship with God, with Jesus. Uh, it's also called the Eucharist. The word Eucharist, it's a transliteration of the Greek word Eucharistia. It means to, to express gratitude for benefits or blessings, to give thanks. So the word Eucharist means thank you. Jesus, thank you. It comes from the synoptic gospels when Christ gives thanks after he breaks the bread and after he raises the wine. And so the Eucharist reminds us that the supper is not always or merely a somber sacrament. The supper is a table of joy and thanksgiving. And low churches have a history of making the Eucharist feel more like a funeral luncheon than a wedding banquet. 
When we do so, we neglect much of why Jesus left it for us. The Eucharist is to be a weekly catalyst of joy and thanksgiving for God's people. The sacraments are our family resemblance. We come into the family of the local church through the waters of baptism. We then feast together every week at this holy meal, and that's why the sacraments are for the church. Baptism and communion are not for individuals. They're not for a small group of friends as they gather. They're not for parachurch ministries like camps or college gatherings. The sacraments are for the gathered church. The sacraments are the family characteristics of God's people. Because the sacraments are where the history and theology and the mystery of the gospel become real to the church. Baptism and the Eucharist is the place where the past and the future of the gospel break into the present. The sacraments are essential to Christ Community Church because they are our distinguishing marks. They are our family traditions that set us apart from the world. They bring us into God's family and they sustain us in God's family. The sacraments are the only tangible expressions of the gospel that Jesus left us. And when accompanied by the preaching of the word, the sacraments embody the gospel of Jesus Christ. Even now, as we prepare to take the Eucharist together, it is our weekly way to remember and respond to the word together. Communion is the weekly invitation. We respond to the word through our obedience to take Holy Communion every week. We remember his body broken for us, his blood shed for us. As the late Anglican priest Thomas Mackenzie said, as we walk up to the Lord's table with each step, we respond and we remember. As you walk to the table in a moment, with each step, you will respond and you will remember. And we will do so forever, church, because when Christ returns, he will preside over the eternal Eucharist. The marriage supper of the Lamb, we will remember and respond to the gospel forever. The Lord's Supper is our weekly rehearsal dinner for the eternal marriage supper of the Lamb. Every week when we take the, the communion, it is Jesus' weekly declaration that when he returns, he's throwing an eternal party and all the drinks are on him. And so as we come to the Holy Eucharist this morning, church, remember, there is wine here to revive you and there is bread to make you strong. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we ask now that you would keep your promise and that your word would not return void. Father, we know that the gospel is never static. It is either softening hearts or it is hardening hearts. We trust that that has been true this morning. But Father, we ask that in spite of our sin, for anyone and everyone with us this morning who is not trusting in Jesus, that you will soften their heart to believe the gospel. Father, that you would save them, that you would open their eyes to see who Jesus is and what Jesus did, and that they would repent and believe so that they can be baptized and so that they can come to the Eucharist every week. Father, we ask as we come to the table that our hearts would pray 
as your saints have prayed at the Eucharist for 2,000 years, that our prayer would be our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.